Welcome to the Speak as a Leader podcast, where you learn how to speak fearlessly on stage, on camera, and in person. I'm Nasheen, a leadership communications coach from the Fortune 500 world. And on Speak as a Leader, I talk to leaders from corporate giants like Amazon and Google to startup founders, visionaries, TEDx speakers, and even leaders who have worked at the Pentagon. You will get to know how these leaders learned the art and science of speaking fearlessly on any stage. Let's get started. 2022 was a year of new beginnings for me. I reinvented myself for the second time. The first time was 11 years ago when I transitioned out of my corporate job at Procter & Gamble and started experimenting with improv, became a filmmaker. And last year, I realized that I wasn't really a filmmaker at heart. What I loved doing was speaking in public and working with CEOs, entrepreneurs, and startup founders to help them speak in public and on camera. So 2022 was the year that I reinvented myself as a public speaking coach. It was also the year that I launched this podcast, Speak as a Leader, which is now on its 13th episode. So it's lucky number 13 and we're going into 2023. So it's a great time to look back at some of the incredible and I mean truly incredible people that I have had the privilege of talking to. You've heard senior directors at companies like Google. Google is truly an incredible place to grow up. I feel like I've grown up there. Facebook, IBM. I walk through the shining doors of the IBM Australia South Bank offices and you join us again 17 years after I first did it as a fresh-faced grad. Walmart. But at Walmart, there is actually a very healthy legacy of servant leadership. And Unilever. He said, you know, you're going to be a a future leader and you already are. And you need to make sure that you're there for other people to celebrate. You've heard from C-level execs and founders at fast-growing startups. My name is Chris Piper. I'm the CMO of Scribe Media. I was an entrepreneur before I graduated from university. I started my first company when I was 13 years old. And I built a business that essentially was a financial failure, and I burnt myself out doing it. Best-selling authors. Human beings are messy. We're messy. And a lot of people who are managing today that shouldn't be don't like that messiness. I even surprised my hippie self by talking to a director at the Australian Army. So I was leading, as a pilot, a group of about 10 pilots. If you know pilots, every pilot has two or three opinions and they're not afraid to tell you. And I even got to talk to someone who has served at the Pentagon. And I remember having to call in for a presentation, you know, like under the stairs of this strategic operations center that was inside of a presidential palace, inside of the international zone. My voice was shaking, I realized. So... I would love to take you on a little journey through how these amazing leaders have learned the art and science of speaking in public and how they've become better leaders and influencers through speaking. So if you've been listening to Speak as a Leader for a little while, 
You might know that I have a signature question that I ask almost every single guest. I ask them, what is your switch flip moment? What is that one moment, if there was a moment, where you stop being a manager or a boss and you truly became a leader? Georgia Watson at IBM has a great response to this. I have had a few, a few moments like that. I'm going to share one, and it's probably one that a few of your audience might be able to relate to. And it hit me like a real, a real slap in the face. It was a shock for me. And I was part of a discussion. We were making some pretty big decisions around an opportunity that was available. And I was, you know, listening to the conversation and the conversation was really just um, kicking off. And on a prompt, I shared my perspective and then bam, it was done. The decision had been made based on what I said. I was really shocked because, you know, I was used to working in environments where you discuss, you debate, you challenge one another. I certainly wasn't the SME in the room. Obviously, I was being seen as the leader. And then that just made the decision final. So it really taught me that you really need to be careful about what you say um, and how you say it to make sure that you know, you're not shutting down other conversations. And I think this is probably true for both managers and leaders, but where I've seen it most is when it is that someone who is perceived as the leader or the person who should have the final say says something and that's it. And there's nothing further. I think that's really dangerous because you really want to, you know, allow others to share their perspective, particularly if you're not the expert and more like collectively reach that same endpoint rather than having someone coming in and, and just tell you. And Chris Piper, who was CMO at Scribe Media when I interviewed him, had this to say about the same question. At some point, your, your CEO said, you're not yet a leader, you might be a good manager. But then something happened to get you to the stage where now you're absolutely confident in the fact that you do speak as a leader all around at work and in your personal life. There was there something that you worked on deliberately in in that time from in between being told that you're not yet a leader, don't call yourself a natural leader to now. There was a lot of things, right? So there was, I would say, there's a lot of steps, a lot of practice put into place. Um, but I, there's one moment that I can think back to where um, I wouldn't say that there was a natural switch, but it gave me. Um, the, like an unwavering amount of confidence to say that like, oh no, I can be this leader that I really want to be. I can be a leader like the other leaders that I see and that I aspire to be like. And so um, long story short, what it, what happened was we were having our company-wide summit and this was like, I think in 2018. So a few, few years back, 2018 or 2019. And uh, we work with, we write and publish books, right? So one of our authors that we worked with, uh, his name's Philip McKernan, and he wrote the book, One Last Talk. And essentially the, the summary of the book is, um, it's a little bit dark, but just bear with me. It's like, if you're on your deathbed and you have one last talk to give, what is that talk? What is that thing you have to say and who do you say it to? Okay, well, don't wait till you're on your deathbed to say it. Do it now, do it today. And the, 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 that's the concept of the book. And the book actually walks you through how to write your one last letter and how to write your one last talk. And up to this point, 
I've never done any public speaking. I don't like speaking in public. I'm a man of um, very few words. I'm very introverted. I don't even like doing podcasts. Um, I get really nervous when I talk. So this thing, this one last talk, I gave in front of the entire company. And it was about all of my childhood trauma, all of my young adult trauma, and basically that arc of what had happened to lead to to where I was. So I was like a product of like a abusive divorce. And then I had a, a, a child and went through a custody battle for 10 years with her and et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I'm standing in front of however many people we, we had uh, in the company, like 40, 50 people giving a 15 minute speech about basically the most traumatic experience of my childhood and adult life, being completely honest, completely transparent, and then just like trying to hold back tears, can't do it. Uh, give give this speech, the speech went well. <laughs> and, you know, of course, everyone, you know, standing ovation or whatever, and, um, you know, got Slack messages of like, you're my hero. Thanks so much for sharing that. Really respect you. You know, like, you know, I already had like a certain level of, peer respect and you know people like me i like them or whatever but that that that, that well, it wasn't about gaining respect but what that really made me realize was like if i can do that that really painful somewhat embarrassing extremely vulnerable thing i couldn't imagine anything worse like i would rather stand up naked in front of everyone than have to do that speech again but if i can do that I can go into a room and have a salary conversation and let someone know why they're not worth the salary they think they're worth or why they're not getting promoted yet. Or I could have a conversation with my CEO why we're going to miss um, that quarterly target. I've always been super curious about leadership models because there are so many of them and you don't always know which ones are effective. Of course, what I am most curious about is not just leadership itself, but what speaking as a leader really means, how to be effective in your communication so that you can lead well. So I talked to someone at the world's number one company, Lynn, ex-director at Walmart, shared with us what speaking as a leader meant at Walmart. I think of preparing to speak as a leader in um, two big areas. I think about the care and I think about the captivate. And by care, exactly as you mentioned, it's, it's about your human brand, right? Not just your leadership brand, because every communication, verbal or nonverbal, has an impact. And so when I think about when I have to speak, I start with who am I speaking to? right? What level are they? Um, and why am I speaking? Right? I should be listening, right? One of the hallmarks of a strong and consistent servant leader is the ability to listen. So why am I talking, right? Am I talking to motivate, to activate, to cascade, to apologize, to teach, right? So why am I speaking as first? And then who, like I had mentioned, um, I learned very quickly that while I led a global team, I had to reduce my speed of speaking. I had to shorten my sentences and I had to repeat and repeat and repeat. Um, and then I had to repeat even more. And so the who is really important And working on a global team could mean that I'm speaking to my team. So therefore, junior to me, 
But then the same, at the same time, I would be speaking to peers or seniors who then I also have to think about is English their second language? Um, and what is the communication approach that is most suitable for the message? You know, all of it comes together then in my personal style as conversational as I can make it. I, I don't do very well memorizing scripts. So I usually bring bullet points um, and I try and calm my fears by thinking of, you know, the auditorium, if I had to speak in front of a large, large group as just like my living room and they're just being polite. They're just waiting for me to finish my communication before they participated. Here's Dallas Costner, COO at Keener Jerseys, talking about the specific leadership model that he lives by. You're a VP now, act like it. Uh, he was very stern, a bit old school and spoke his mind, but he was right. Uh, and from then onward, I took it upon myself to really study what being a leader was and what I needed to do. So what is being a leader? And if you were to kind of tell me maybe the top three things that you learned at that time that you've carried with you, what would those be connected to being a leader? Right. Uh, what I've learned is that uh, there are three things required to be a leader and the three main jobs of a leader, that's to invite, include and inspire. You can have the greatest ideas in the world, a strong vision, but if you don't bring people along and, and into the conversation, they don't buy in. It's a fundamental part of change management that you want to have people uh, participate you need to bring them into that conversation. And it's not just inviting them and bringing them in. It's like truly including them in decisions, uh, valuing their opinions. And then inspiration is so important because you've got that vision. You've, you've uh, in your mind, most entrepreneurs, they can see, oh, this is what we need to do. This is where we need to go. But no one else knows. So how do you inspire them? Uh, you know, the quiet quitting is something, uh, a term that's that's come up a lot lately, mm. where people only want to do the minimum. You're paying them a, a wage or a salary. Why would they want to do anything more for you? And that's where inspiration is really important. So those people say, I can't wait to help you build this because I'm going to be a part of it. I'm going to see it grow. I'll be able to have part of my name on it and stake claim on, on the, their role in achieving it. What I love about this approach is that it keeps the audience at the heart of the speaking. And the best speakers that I've seen, heard, worked with, or even just heard of, they are all audience-centric. Like Jenny Wood at Google, who is one of the most impactful speakers that I have had the pleasure of talking to. You mentioned something about being thoughtful, organizing your thoughts. That leads me to preparing. So I would love to know when you're about to go on stage or when you're about to present or when you're about to pursue a speaking opportunity that is for an external audience, do you have a specific Jenny Wood way of prepping for your presentation? Because that is something I that a lot of people really want to know about. I do have a, have a Jenny Wood way of prepping for presentations. I want to wow people with my mm -hmm. presentation skills 
and I want to win them over with my slides. So let me walk you through that. They're acronyms. WOW stands for watch, optimize, and write. Let me take those first. So the first W is, is watch. I watch myself every time I present. And if I'm doing a new presentation, I might record it 12 times before I ever present it once. You never want your performance to actually be your dress rehearsal. You never want to walk into a meeting, whether you're presenting in front of a thousand people or you're presenting in front of four over Zoom to your VP, trying to convince them to adopt your new insights program. You never want that to be the first time you've done it. And so often it is for people because they're working on the deck until the, you know, until five minutes before the presentation and they forget to practice. So not only do I practice, I practice, I record it, I watch it and I improve it. That takes me to the O of wow for optimize. And that's optimizing one thing, just one thing. So let's say it's a live presentation. I might be, and I'm my own worst critic. So here are all things that I've done in the past or I'm still working on. I might have, you know, my arms and like uh, always holding them up by my chest, right? Maybe I want to relax them down a little bit more. Maybe I want to focus on my filler words, which tend to be, you know, and I think. Maybe I want to work on my speed and slow down because I know I talk pretty fast. Maybe I want to work on my inflection. Maybe I want to work on smiling more. But to try to think of all those things and optimize all those things in one shot, it's just you're setting yourself up for, uh, for failure. So O stands for optimize one. Pick one thing you want to optimize per presentation, per keynote, whatever it is. And then finally, the, the, the second W of wow, how I, how I w try to wow people with my presentation skills, is I write... W for write, speaker notes. And not do I, I don't just write speaker notes. I color code my speaker notes. So, and, and use different font formatting. So bold means I'm gonna really drive home this point. Light gray means it's quiet and I'm going to hush my voice for more impact. Purple means I'm going to talk in a higher register because nobody wants to hear me talk monotone the entire time. They want to hear it varied with some ideas up here and some ideas further down in my register down here. And then I also use brackets for pregnant pauses to remind myself to stop, take a breath, be thoughtful. Sometimes I have also been a bit cheeky in challenging the leaders I've spoken with, like with Jared Johnson who was with the U.S. Air Force for 21 years, including serving at the Pentagon. The way that you're talking about leadership, inclusion, empathy, building a feedback loop, it all sounds really positive. And honestly, I would say it's very surprising for me to hear because the way that I always imagined, um, you know, the military, the Air Force, any part of the military really is very, it's in a very different way. Perhaps it's just because I'm an outsider and probably also the fact that I identify more as a hippie, you know, with a, a healthy <laughs> skepticism of yeah. authority and structures. I think also coming from that background. So it's it's almost in a way super positive, like too positive. I totally believe all the things that you're telling me about. I'm just wondering, were you the exception to the rule? Is leadership 
and communication in the military in general? Is it not very regimented? Does it not have to follow very strict rules? Is it not geared necessarily towards empowering different voices that might disagree? Like on the outside, are we just getting a completely different view of, of what it's actually like on the inside? That's an interesting question. Um, I'll, tr I'll, try to, I'll try to approach it in a way that uh, your hippie self will appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, part of this, it's a few things. Um, there's a generational element, I would suggest, uh, that when you look at the leaders who were uh, at the top, when I came in, you know, 20 odd years ago to the Air Force, uh, when I entered, they were very much from the great man theory of leadership school. Mm -hmm. They were less collaborative. Um, they were less interested in, I, I would suggest they were less interested in dissenting opinions, back to your point. And, you know, leadership, the understanding of leadership, like the constant evaluation of how we become better leaders, how do we improve? Like over time, that's just made, that's just made military, I'll speak for Air Force leaders, but I assume it's across all services, has made them better, more effective leaders. Um, mm -hmm. You know, certainly in the Air Force, there's not much kind of uh, charge the hill leadership uh where I, I need you to run up that hill with your gun while you're getting shot at. Um, mm. it's, it's interesting in some senses because the folks who are generally put in harm's way are the most highly trained, um, the you know officer level individuals who are crossing the line into, into a place where they're gonna get shot at. Um, so it's a little different than other services, I, I would say, is part of that equation as well. I don't think I'm the exception. I think when I when I look at leaders who like the generations who follow behind me, they'll have more of this approach. And I think it's because we learn, we grow as people, as a population, as organizations. And the Air Force, as I pointed out, like from day one at the academy, like you're talking about leadership in a really smart, meaningful, nuanced way that just doesn't happen outside of uh, outside of that type of space. So, you know, you could take someone who's just stepped away from a four year degree there and they could lead a leadership workshop anywhere in the world, practically for me. The bad leader, if if you can use that term, bad leader, mm -hmm. um, the ineffective leader maybe is more appropriate. The ineffective leader is the exception to the rule when you look at uh, and, and the Air Force environment. And talking about challenging stereotypes, I talked to Dr. Alessandro Wall, who is a certified psychologist and coach, about challenging female stereotypes when we speak. So you might already have an idea of how men and women speak differently at work, but have you ever thought about why? And which of these behaviors, so-called natural behaviors, are actually natural and which ones are learned? I started studying specifically the differences between how men and women communicate at work, because that is what my focus is now on leadership communications. And there are such stark differences in the way that men and women communicate, all the way from how women and men use 
body language. So for example, and you might know a lot of these, but I'll just kind of quickly oh, go please. over the few things that I, that I learned. And I would love to know your point of view. So women, the difference in body language between women and men, just an, a small example is how women nod to indicate that they're listening, but men nod to indicate that they are in agreement. So women end up nodding a lot more and perhaps that nodding is perceived as agreement when it's actually just listening and support. In terms of the actual words that are being used, a lot of women will use questioning intonations. And this is something I caught myself doing so much. You think we can do this? I think we should do this. And a man would would use sentences, not questions. And also a woman is more likely to use we and a man is more likely to use I. One of the most eye-opening things about the differences in communication between the genders that I learned was through a TEDx talk. I believe it was by Reshma Sojani. I don't know if you've seen that one. It's a brilliant one. She says that they, uh, she did this, I don't know if it was her or if she uh, read about it, but there was this experiment in IT students. So because she works in coding. So this experiment with students that work coding and these students were, of course, finding errors in their coding projects and seeking help from their teachers. When a man, when a male student approached a teacher and asked for help, the man would say, hi, can you help me? There's something wrong with my code. When a female student approached the same teacher with an error in her project, she would say, hi, can you help me? There's something wrong with me. I can't figure this out. There's something wrong with me. I cannot tell you how chilling that was. Even now, as I'm talking about it, it's sending chills up and down my body because I have said those words so many times. And when I saw that TEDx talk, I realized, wow, do men really say there's something wrong with this project? Do men really not think that every single mistake that they make is a direct reflection of how good they are? How fragile are our own esteems and our own, how fragile is our own self-worth as women? And just that bit of difference in communication style was, it was mind-blowing for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, all of those things really speak to me. The nodding is really interesting, but with women, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. For one, we do nod a lot. And then people assume that because we're nodding, we are in agreement. Therefore, we don't have anything to say. So we're not invited to speak as much. But I have literally, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was having lots of conversations with people because they couldn't meet them. And so I remember jumping on a conversation with a local CEO of a, uh, it's a tech company, small tech company. Well, not that small, but, and we were talking about the work I do and his women. And he literally said, well, could you teach my women to use less words? They use, did you not see the research? Women use five times as many words as men that I can't even remember what the number is. And I sat there, first of all, in that moment, I'm like, I do not want to work with you. Uh, it was my first thought. But second of all, we do use more words. Why do, on average, women tend to use more words? Because we're asked to explain and justify. Right Now, in saying all this, if you're a male listening to this, I don't want you to sit around and go, why are they bashing us? We're not bashing you. What we're saying is there's a discrepancy that exists and 
it would be really nice if we could operate by the same standards you have not to have you lose your standards, right? So women and actually minoritized individuals in any system have to prove that what they say is factually true. In most systems, if you are in power, and in this case, if we're talking gender, if you're male, you can walk in and say, this isn't the right way of approaching this. We should do things this way. And in general, more often than not, people will go, okay, well, tell me about it. Whereas if you say that as a woman, what will happen is, well, where are you coming from? Can you, what, what data do you have to back that up? What's going on? That gets internalized over a lifetime. So we tend to walk in as explainers off the bat. And it, and it tends to be expected. This idea also of upspeak, that's what you were talking about when I say, hi, my name is Alessandra. It's really nice to meet you, right? Do you have a moment to speak? Which women use a lot um, and became, and this I don't know why, it became more noticeable again with the millennial generation. And I don't know what that is. Maybe it's just that we were podcasting more and broadcasting more. So we, we were paying attention to it. The problem with upspeak is that the brain interprets upspeak as you're lying. You're making a statement, but you're using a tone and an inflection that's for a question. So you're not sure. So either you're uncertain or you're lying to me. I am now going to start doubting what you're saying. And now we've got a trust breach, right? I can't even listen to you. But we do it. Women in general have learned to do that because when we make very forceful statements, we are told that we are, I had one prospective client today, I was talking to one woman I was talking to who was saying, you know, I don't have a confidence issue. She said, actually, it's problematic. I have been labeled as arrogant and aggressive at times. But it's just because when I walk into a system, if I understand it, I can speak to it. And I just like to get straight to the issue. But if we say, instead of saying, hey, we really need to, I'm looking at the system, it's broken, and, and we, we need to review it then we're arrogant and aggressive. If I come in and I say, hey, I'm wondering, I was looking at the system. Is anybody else seeing a problem with the system? I'm wondering if maybe possibly there would be a better way of doing this. I'm thinking that maybe, and this is the stuff we need to do to not get backlash, but it's also the exact same stuff that makes people say we're not decisive and that then undermines our authority. All kinds of stereotypes creep in when we speak. The danger of not recognizing them when speaking in public is that leaders amplify what they speak. And if you're speaking only from the head, but not the heart, Mark C. Crowley has something to share that might get you thinking differently. He's the best-selling author of Lead from the Heart. And this is what he says about speaking as a leader. So, first of all, when you're the captain of a ship and you hit an iceberg and you got 500 people on the ship. Do you get on the microphone and go, oh my God, we just hit an iceberg and we're going down. You know, who wants a captain like that, right? I mean, who wants that? Nobody. We want the captain to go, ladies and gentlemen, we have had a serious situation here, but we have one of the most talented crews here. We've been trained in this. We wanna give you instructions on how to behave, but we want you to know, cool heads prevail. We're gonna get through this. Now, who, which one do you wanna work for? The first one or the second one, right? So 
it, there's some mindfulness in this. There's some clear sense that I'm going to be a better person when this happens. So it starts with intention. If you have the intention, you'll remember. You start barking orders and then you'll go, oh, that's not the machine that I want to be. And so you back off from that and you go back to saying please and thank you and often to make up for it. And people are like, okay, she's cool. And then it works. So it's a balance of thinking out how I want to be when I get under stress, knowing that I could be a bad Mr. Hyde, Mrs. Hyde. But also giving people the heads up that you can be high every once in a while and you don't mean to be and it's not about them and that you love them and we're going to do great work together. But I'm human, too, and I may get into this bad behavior, but you can't do that all the time because people, they it just becomes an excuse. Right. But the other thing is, is that going back to this captain of the ship thing, um, what people really need is assurance that they're going to be okay. But what if you're a leader in position only and don't get the respect that you feel you deserve? Is there a way that you can speak to your teams that gets you recognized as a leader? Oh, an important side note. I am not a proponent of the school of thought that says leaders deserve authority by default. Not at all. Leaders need to prove themselves to be worthy of that respect and authority. But sometimes the team comes with their own biases. Like for Jamie Martin, director of the Australian Army Center for Leadership. I had to take an approach where, all right, let's get in, let's have the debate. Okay, let's have the debate, map it out. But at the end of the day, I'm still the boss and I have the responsibility for us to make the decision for us to execute. So let's get it all on the table. If you don't agree, lay it out the reason. I'm prepared to change. I'm prepared to change my opinion if it's within within the bounds of what we can do. And and this is where um, I started to really learn intellectual humility, which I think is a really key trait of a leader. Interestingly enough, the challenge of speaking to be recognized as a leader is quite common in the corporate world too. Nikolai Serme at Unilever shares how he worked through a similar challenge. Becoming a manager at a young age, there's somebody that told me one time, I'm not going to listen to you because you're a kid. And I said, well, you know, you don't necessarily have to listen to me, but we do have to work together. And you have to earn their trust to say, I'm not really here to tell you what to do. I'm here to find you a way to make do things a little bit better, a little bit easier. And then we can both hopefully learn something because you have life experience. I have maybe a little more of a technical experience for understanding and I also am not biased and I don't have this baggage of like how things are supposed to work. You know, so when you break it down for people that way, they're like, oh, okay. And then they are more on board with you. So yeah, definitely had my share, my share of that. Those were some of the most memorable moments at Speak as a Leader this year. I am so honored and grateful that you've chosen to be part of the Speak as a Leader community. I started this podcast with a hope that talking to some of these people might be insightful and thought-provoking for a few people. And I have been blown away by how many of you have reached out to me on LinkedIn and email to tell me how much they've enjoyed our episodes. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. Hey, you're still here. 
Thanks for listening all the way till the end. I am super grateful for your support. If you like this episode, please take a minute to leave a five-star review. It would mean the world to me. To know about how I help leaders speak fearlessly, you can check out nsheen.com. That is the first letter of my name, N for Nasheen, with a sheen like Martin and Charlie. See you in the next episode. Till then, speak fearlessly. Fearlessly.